Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, Tarzan, Pretty Woman, Sister Act, DuckTales, Big Hero 6, Toy Story, Toy Story 2, Beaches, Cocktail, Frozen, Aladdin, The Gummy Bears, Dinosaur, Mulan, Hercules, A Bug's Life, The Emperor's New Groove, Annie, Cinderella, Cars, Wreck-It Ralph, Brave, the list goes on and on and on. Here is part one of our interview with Disney's former president of music, executive music producer Chris Montan. This is The Soundtrack Show. For nearly 35 years, Chris Montan has been creating some of the most famous soundtracks and song scores of all time. From his beginnings at the Walt Disney Company in 1984 to his tenure as Disney's president of music, Chris has played a key role in bringing our favorite songs and scores to life across multiple mediums, including animation, feature animation, Broadway, and live action films. Whenever artists like Howard Ashman, Alan Menken, Elton John or Hans Zimmer were creating magic, Chris was there for the Disney company guiding the way. Today, we're going to hear him tell some incredible stories about the moments behind the scenes that shaped some of the most famous film music and song scores of the last few decades. Chris, thank you so much for coming up on the Soundtrack Show. We're just thrilled to have you here on the show. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, obviously, soundtracks have been a big part of my career. And so I'm not probably as passionate about them as anybody that's listening. I, I have to say, your career is just stellar to the point where I wasn't even sure where to begin with interview questions because of your career, not only as a, as a solo artist and songwriter before you started at Disney, but you were at Disney from 1984, is that right? All the way That's until, correct. and you're still, I understand you retired recently, but you are still working on projects consulting even now with a Disney company. What a, yeah. what a tremendous career. Yeah, it's been fun. And I didn't want to completely retire. I just didn't want to go to an office anymore. And it was kind of time for me to let the next generation take over. But I did wind up working on Frozen the last two years for Broadway with Bobby and Kristen. And I'm doing some consulting for the, um, the animated movies that they're converting to live action now, like Aladdin and Lion King. 
That is so exciting. Of course, those are near and dear to you because you worked on those original soundtracks for Aladdin and the Lion King. Um, I wanted to go all the way back to the beginning and and talk about your initial hire at Disney. And, and, and maybe you can take listeners through the process of what your job entailed in terms of bringing these soundtracks to life. Well, I was a songwriter and a <clears throat> touring musician for about 10 years. And then I made a record. And so my background was really all on the music side. I, I, I don't think I really ever had a job other than college jobs. I was always on a stage playing a guitar or something. So when, after my record came out in the early 80s, music really changed. And it had gone from, I was sort of very James Taylory and nice chord changes and stuff. And now punk and new wave was coming on and my music was quickly getting out of favor. So I thought, well, I'll go to Disney and do some songwriting there because they were making all these uh, character albums, Mouser Size and Mickey Mouse Disco, all those sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. And while I, while I was interviewing to do the songwriting, the gentleman who was the publisher was replaced. So I came home to my wife one night and I said, well, if I was ever going to try the other side of the desk for a little while, maybe this would be a good place to try. It's a sleepy little company. And at this point, this is about a month before Michael Eisner started. Wow, fascinating! So, so you're right there at the genesis of sort of of uh, the the new era of of Disney musicals and soundtracks. Yeah, it just happened. It was just coincidence, really. And so I started interviewing. I think Michael started in June or July and brought Jeffrey Katzenberg over from Paramount, and I started working there in October. So for the first um, year and a half, I was the music publisher. And what they really, though, wanted was they had a lot of marketing people in their record company, but they didn't really have any creative people. So the gentleman that hired me really wanted me to help develop music for him, because in addition to running the record company, they had asked him to start up a new Saturday morning animation business. So the very first things I worked on were gummy bears, the wuzzles, all these, you know, ducktails. Wow. Um, and I was... Res- so I was sort of thrown into the pool right away. Life is like a hurricane here in Duckburg. Race cars, lasers, aeroplanes. It's a duck blur. Might solve a mystery. Or rewrite history. Ducktails. Every day they're out there making ducktails. But having been a songwriter, it that was the easy part. It was very easy for me to transition into half the job. The hard part of the job was trying to figure out what executives were like, how business was, because <clears throat> I really had no background in it, and I was already in my mid-30s. Uh-huh. So that was a pretty quick learn-as-you-earn situation. Right. Right. So the music part was was the easy part for you. Um, what was it like then when you had to bring artists in to work with you? Like, what was the process of finding other artists and now suddenly going from being an artist to being sort of the business representative for a, for a major company like that? Well, I, I was fortunate that I had a very good business affairs attorney, and she taught me a lot of the ropes of publishing agreements, sub-publishing, that sort of thing. And she handled a lot of it directly for me so that I was freed up to really get in touch with, I was contacting a lot of my songwriter friends who I knew could write melodic music because that really, even, even in the early going, when we were starting on those, those cartoons, I always felt that the, the most important thing you had to have was a really lasting melody, 
no matter what idiom you were in, whether it was a simple three chord song for a cartoon or whatever. Um, and I sort of stake my claim as a songwriter, as somebody who really focused on melodic writing and themes and that sort of thing. So I reached out to a lot of people that I knew, got recommendations from people that I, I knew and started bringing people in. Um, and then I was starting to produce some of the, the themes and things. So I had John Williams' son, Joe, come in and sing the actual Gummy Bears uh, theme with like a 70-piece or- or- orchestra. And NBC came in and looked at me like, what are you, crazy? Because in this year, most of the Saturday morning music was made on synthesizer and it sounded like four people playing. Right. And I said, let me spend a little extra money on this one thing because it's going to kind of announce our ambition and that we're not going to be like everybody else. Wow. So you had a, you were just right early in your career saying, let's spend the money and take some creative risks to help Disney as a brand stand apart. Yes. Wow. That's great. I heard you once say in an interview that where you, you will ask people, a room of people, you know, name your top 10 favorite Paramount songs versus right, your right. top 10, uh, I, you know, and the room would laugh because they knew where you, you were going. Is, can you say that that's kind of the beginning of it was the, these kind of moves like bringing in a huge orchestra versus, you know, doing a quick, uh, a quick demo with synths? Well, I think that might have been a little bit of the beginning, but in about a year and a half later, I met the guy who was now running the film studio music department, and he asked me to come over and be his number two. So I was fortunate that it, Probably in today's times, companies are too layered for you to make a jump that fast from where I was. But Disney was changing so quickly in those first two or three years that it was a little bit more like the Wild West. And the, the gentleman that I, hired me was really looking for a musical person and, and somebody with music background. And I would say the first one I started on was Oliver. That was kind of the first where we were going to use more theater writers and pop writers. At, um, but I inherited a lot of the people because it had already been started without me. Uh, but what it gave me was an understanding that it, if we were going to bring back these musicals, we had to compete with the legacy of Pinocchio and, and uh, Dumbo and Snow White, which meant great melodic writing and hopefully from one writing team per movie. And Pretty soon thereafter, I met Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, probably in like 87, maybe. Uh-huh. And we started, work, we started working on Little Mermaid. And that's really where um, I got excited about the job and, and, and started thinking, well, maybe this is something I would do longer than just a couple of years. So you were you were right there as the company transitioned into that into that new era with and you mentioned Howard Ashman and, and Alan Menken and the Little Mermaid. Did you. No, I'm sure you get this question a lot. Did you have any moments in the studio looking at The Little Mermaid, for example, and hearing those melodies where you thought this is going to be a huge hit? Um, you know, when I heard the demos, Howard and Alan were unbelievable demo makers, and they could sing all the parts. I mean, if you go back and listen to Howard doing some of the lead vocals now, the, the performers are really um, kind of channeling him through their voices because he had such a clear understanding, as did Alan, of what they wanted vocally, musically, and from a, an emotional standpoint. So I knew that we were really on to something. And certainly, you couldn't hear part of your world and not think, oh, this is going to be quite something. Um, but sure. to be honest, the, 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 the real turning point for me was the first, we were about halfway through Little Mermaid, or maybe two-thirds, 
and I got the first demos on Beauty and the Beast. And I had a tape with Bell, Beauty and the Beast, and I think Gaston on it. And it turned my head around because I knew how, how talented they were having been a songwriter, but to hear a seven minute opening number that included every aspect of the storytelling and then to hear a love song that was expressed in seven words, um, barely even friends, then somebody bends unexpectedly. Mm. So you tell a whole story. And that's when I knew that these guys were so unique. the baker with his tray like always the same old bread and rolls to sell every morning just the same since the morning that we came to this poor provincial town good morning pal morning monsieur where are you off to the bookshop i just finished the most wonderful story about a beanstalk in a tailor's old as time As it can be Barely even friends Then somebody bends Unexpectedly Just a little change Small to say the least Both a little scared Neither one prepared Nobody else really in Hollywood was doing musicals. They had really been forgotten since the late 60s. You know, once Scorsese and Coppola came along, musicals that were made on sound stages started to feel very artificial, very old-fashioned. And Howard and Alan were able to bridge that gap where they were using the principles of what those great musicals were from Frank Lesser or Rodgers and Hammerstein, but they were young enough that they grew up with the Beatles or Billy Joel, so their melodies didn't feel like 40s melodies, which a lot of those Broadway shows did. I think that was really the turning point for us. We, we, they had the knowledge of the past, but they had the vocabulary of the present. They had more of a pop sensibility to their harmonic language and melodic writing. Is that kind of, is that kind of what yes. you're thinking? It's just yes. less, uh, less in that great American songbook and a little bit more like Paul McCartney? Something like that? Yeah, I mean, certainly Alan could, Alan could write a traditional song. If you ask him to sit down tomorrow and write a Rodgers and Hammerstein style song, he, he can do it because he can do anything. But I think we all were in our mid-30s, and we wanted to see if we could bring back these great old standard kind of songs, but in a new way. Yeah, it's funny, because you once said in an interview as well, that, and I just loved this, you said a whole new world sounds just as good today as it did when it debuted and will probably sound just as good in 40 years. And I'm sorry, I'm paraphrasing you here. But what I loved about that was the idea of writing timeless melodies and timeless lyrics versus falling into the trappings of of modern sounds or something that is easily dated. Um, What do you think the secret is there? Because I know that that must be a balancing act, given, given what you just said about how you know, you 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 didn't sound like an old uh, Lesser or Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, but you sounded a little more contemporary, yet timeless. What was finding that balance and striking that balance like? Well, I was lucky that since our initial success with Howard and Allen on Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, our our studio heads, Jeffrey Katzenberg in particular, who was running animation as well as the studio, he really trusted us 
and didn't ever ask us to try to be like the hit, the moment of the time. And here's a guy who would come from Paramount and it had some huge soundtracks was staying alive and those sorts of things oh, that yeah. were very much of their moment. But for whatever reason, the powers that be really let us, my view was that a, a, a timeless melody will, since Disney had been built on that. I mean, Snow White is nothing but timeless melodies. Pinocchio is the same way, Dumbo. And I thought we could do that again. And then if the movies are as good as the music, they will never date. They will always, because if you think about, I used to say in a lot of the interviews and things, you go back to a movie like Car Wash and you hear a disco guitar. And so the music sounds kind of funny to kids now and kind of silly. Right. Whereas by, by us always not chasing, like when our first really big hit was beating the beast. And I was told by all my friends in the record business, you can't have a, a, a hit with a song like that on the radio today. And this is the time where Nirvana was you know, and, and screaming trees and all kinds of very um, aggressive rock things were on the radio in the early nineties. And we come out with this little ballad with people, Bryson and Celine Dion. Right. But at the end of the year, year after year, we would be one of the two or three most perform songs. And so I, I actually went to Eisner at one point and said, the way I measure success for us is not just that the movies are big hit, although that's very important, or that we sell a lot of records, although that's very important. It's that when I go to my son's uh, high school or school um, concert, one class is singing, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Another class is singing A Whole New World because that means we penetrated culture. We're not somebody that's just going to be around for those eight months and then somebody will move on to the next group. These songs, if we land them hard enough, the, all those kids that grew up singing those are now in their 40s and 50s. Right. Yes, I count myself as, and, well, not quite as one of them. I'm a little older, but but uh, but I remember that very, very well. Yes, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. I mean, we had people, even though Newsies, for example, was not a successful film when it came out, we had people ask us for years when we were going to do it as a show. And we kept kind of scratching our head, but it's because all these kids in the nineties had grown up with the video cassette of it and they had watched it over and over again. And they knew the music so well that when we launched the newsies a few years ago for stage, um, we had no idea that it was going to take off at the level that it did. We thought we'd do, you know, do it for licensing. We never dreamed we were going to go to Broadway with it and have a big tour and go around the world with it. But again, it's those melodies that Alan wrote. They are like, what do they call them? Earworms? Earworms, they get yes. In your head and, you, <laughs> and, and you can't get them out. And that was always sort of my mission. And when he and I would work together, he would generally play the things over the phone for me. He was in suburban New York and I was in L.A. And we would work the melody till we thought we had it before we would play it for anybody. And then, you know, then obviously the lyricist would be involved depending on who it was before the director ever heard it. Because what I didn't want was in the film business. Sometimes the directors have so much power that if they hear something and we don't think we're done yet, but they love it, they may just go, well, I want to use it that way. And we didn't want to risk that. We wanted to make sure that when they said they loved it, they loved what we already thought was right. And you couldn't argue with it because it was just too good because you'd worked it up. You'd spent well, the time. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I mean, there was, some, I think we had out of six years, 
there's only two Academy Awards for music every year for the song and the score. And in six years, we won 10 out of 12. That's incredible. So what an incredible I'm, legacy. I don't think that'll, that'll ever happen again. And the only reason, I think Bruce Springsteen won the year with a great song from Philadelphia. And I'm not sure we even had a musical. I don't think we had a musical that year. But there was a time when we just felt like if we had a great melody, told the story correctly, and it was wedded into a good movie, it was very hard for the other film studios who were just putting out live action movies primarily. And often their songs were just songs that were end credit songs that didn't necessarily have much of anything to do with the storytelling of the actual movie you had just seen. Whereas, you know, when you hear Bell, that song is telling you everything you need to know about the next 90 minutes of the film. Right. Yeah. It seems like more of a business decision when they put a song at the end in the credits so that they could actually go after those awards versus something being totally integral to the story. And now for a brief intermission. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We return now to the soundtrack show. Although you worked on some movies that I would argue had really great songs that felt like they really were part of the movie. I think of... uh, I think of Beaches, I think of Cocktail, I think of some of these movies that had huge hits involved in them. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that process of integrating pop music into movies like that? And was it just because it was the MTV era that that made them so successful and feel like they were so integrated into the movie? Because they seemed much more than just credit songs to me. Well, a lot of those movies were happening in a parallel course. So I'd be working on Pretty Woman while I was working on Beating the Beast. Wow. So I wasn't going to become a different person with different standards just because I was working in live action opposed to animation. So what we were trying to do in um, live action, and I had a partner, Mitchell Lee, who was my number two at the time, who was also a really good song guy who runs Disney's uh, live action music department to this day. And we would go after great melodic songs. We had a song, um, we had we did an album deal with EMI, a joint venture. So we had access to all their artists. And one of their biggest was Roxette at that time. And they were very busy. We met with them and they didn't really have time to write a new song. And I said, well, why don't you send me everything you've ever recorded? So they sent me all their old Swedish albums, even before they had become big over here. And I found this song, It Must Have Been Love. And it was a little bit different. It didn't have a, much of a guitar, but it had such an incredible melodic hook. And I, so I called them and said, would you guys go back in the studio and modernize it a little bit? You know, maybe add some guitar to it. And then the lead singer, she resang it beautifully. And they sent the record back to us and we mixed it and we had a number one record. Wow. Now that was a very, that was a very planned thing. That was not an accident. You know, I, I must've listened to a hundred of their songs to get that one. And then luckily, um, Gary Marshall put it in a great sequence where um, Julia Roberts is driving away, leaving Richard Gere in the back of a cab. And so even though it wasn't a lyric that had been written for that scene, it completely captured the scene of what was happening, almost too 
almost too much. I mean, it's like, yeah. it must have been love, but it's over now. I mean, that's pretty on the nose. It was right. Yeah, but, you nailed uh, it right on the head there. That's great. It must have been. Can you say that's your favorite song score that you ever worked on, or are there other song scores and moments like that that you're particularly proud of? Um, well, I loved working on Sister Act, um, and oh. I give so much of the credit to, to Mark Shaman because Mark, you know, the premise was we were going to do, we wanted a kind of music that would be universal. And at that time, again, in the early 90s, it was hard to find musics that everybody could agree on and really the only two or three popular musics that everybody agreed on was everybody loved the Beatles, uh-huh. everybody loved Motown, and then you figure out the third one. So we figured, well, well, we'll do the Motown approach. And Mark, and I don't remember who came up with the lyric idea of changing it to My God, but <laughs> Mark and I went, went into the studio with a bunch of uh, session singers prior to even shooting the movie. And we started working up My God and I Will Follow Him. And I remember either telling or calling Katzenberg and saying, I think we have a hit movie already. I mean, if, when you hear these songs with these lyrics sung by people wearing nun costumes, I, it's going to be irresistible. And it turned out to be. So it was really, that was a really exciting one. Uh, Wind Beneath My Wings um, was brought in for Beaches um, by one of our producers. And when we made that record, I told Barb, I'm sure this is going to be one of the biggest records in my life because it just, and I was washing my car. We had a, I had a beach house at the time about a week later and I heard it four times just while I was washing my car it, a week after it was released. And oh. I went, okay, I, I know where this one's going. Yeah. That was a huge, huge hit. I mean, I just heard it everywhere. And of course I heard it in school and I heard it, it you know, I heard people audition with it time and time again. You know, I was a, I was a teenager at the time that that came out and that was That was just everywhere. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. I wanted to go back to your to your time there, especially uh, at sort of the the height of that run that you talked about with all of those that Oscar streak and those huge hits. Um, can you walk us through what it was like, say, for example, for The Lion King to find the talent, develop the songs in parallel with the story? It doesn't have to be Lion King. Any one of those movies. Can you just talk about their creative development like you did with uh, with Sister Act there? How does how do those songs get developed along with the uh, along with the story and the animation? Well, I think Lion King in some ways may be my favorite and that's why I'm so excited about the new version um, that John Favreau is working on now. I've seen yes. some of the the se- sequences. It's going to blow people's mind because as much as you think you know the cartoon and a lot of people around the world, millions have seen Julie Tamer's version. When you see real animals, when you see a real Rafiki lift up a real baby Simba, I started to tear up. And I thought, 
I'm 25 years into that project and it could still get me because I was seeing it as if it was really happening. Wow. Um, but the reason why it was so important to me was while we were finishing beauty, Howard Ashman, as you know, was dying of AIDS. Yes. And by the time we finished beauty, we were holding a phone up to his ear in a hospital room, literally. And he had already written about half the songs with Alan for Aladdin so Howard had really been the linchpin for those first three movies and really built and really taught me as a songwriter. I had always hoped to go back to Broadway and write Broadway style pop songs um, if my career had taken off as a songwriter in L.A. So Howard was my teacher in Allen. I it was like going to the best grad school you could go to because they had a, they generally had a, the right answer. So when Lion King came up on. Um, Alan wasn't going to be doing that one. Howard wasn't alive. And everybody kind of looked at me in the room, kind of went, well, you're just going to keep making this thing happen, right? And I'm like, yeah, but I don't write the stuff. I help produce it. I help, you know, develop it. But so I felt a lot of pressure. And what initially happened was um, I, I believe that they went to Tim Rice first. And Tim had suggested ABBA because he had done a great, you know, song score for chess. Uh -huh. years prior and and he thought they might be interesting so our producer tom schumacher who now runs our broadway unit he went over to sweden and they i think they were just so at that time in their careers where they did, didn't have enough time and then thank god tim suggested elton right so we we went over we met with elton elton was intrigued by it i think he liked the challenge of doing something new and also we knew he was so melodic, which was always kind of a key principle of what we were looking for. And he was really versatile. So um, that one, I think, meant the most to me because it was the first one I had to do. Howard was almost like my training wheels. And without them, I had to ride the bike fast and, and straight, but I didn't have his help there. I, I had the memory of what I'd learned from him, but we had to do it on our own. And we had very good directors. Um, and Roger and Rob, and they really helped collaborate with us. We, we worked long and hard, especially Tim would work long on the lyric and then would send it to Elton and then Elton would set it. So he wrote four or five of those songs very, very early on and in a very short order. And I remember when I was playing, can you feel the love tonight? I would get to the end of the first chorus. And, and back then we were still using cassettes and I'd stop the cassette and go, Oh, I know we got it. I know we got it. And I called Captain Bird again because I was always doing that kind of stuff. And I said, I'm positive we have a giant hit. <clears throat> I can't tell you about the rest of them yet, but I know we already have one. So I hadn't even listened to the whole thing all the way through. You could just tell it was just one of those choruses, and it proved to be. How, how long was that process in terms of you know, developing the demos with, with Elton John and all the way until you had your selected songs that you were going to go in and fully work up? Uh, how many months on the calendar go, goes by while you're doing that? Well, I would say it's probably more like about two to two and a half years. And yeah. we were working We were working primarily, um, Hans Zimmer was driving it from his studio. And so I pretty much moved over to Santa Monica for a lot of those day, weekdays. And a fellow named Mark Mancina, who went on to produce the music for the, the stage show, Mark and I would be in one room and we'd be prepping... Um, can't wait to be king and trying new things out. It was, we'd just gotten 
kind of those first early Mac programs with synthesizers and stuff so you could mock stuff up. And um, we did Carmen Twilly there singing Circle of Life. And everybody was saying, well, yeah, but aren't you going to use some big pop person? And we actually went to uh, Yusu Endure thinking that that might be kind of cool. But English was not his first language, and it was a very tough thing for him to do. Um, and we thought about some others, and then eventually we just came full circle back to Carmen because it felt like the song was the star, and she felt like Mother Nature, and it didn't feel like we had to have um, you know, a famous pop star to do our job. Wow. All of that sound, because that was something I was going to ask you about The Lion King, that sound uh, in terms of the arrangement to make it feel like it belongs in that environment, was that something that you were discovering and and found intact during the demo process or did that evolve until you actually had your final recording? I think there was certainly a pre, um, Rob and, and Roger, our directors had heard an early Hans film score. I think it was called circle of one or power, power of one maybe. Uh-huh. And it was an African score. And I think Lebo was even on it a little bit. <laughs> So when they heard that, they said, okay, because their big concern, I did an, we did like a retrospective interview about a year ago, the directors, myself, Mark and Hans, and they were talking about as excited as they were by Elton's melodies and his sensibilities, they were trying, they were, they couldn't wrap their heads quite around how we were going to get it into Africa right. so that it really felt like it matched all those images. And I think that's why we hired Hans. We had heard already that he had start, sort of mastered a lot of that kind of integrating drumming into a symphonic setup and that sort of thing. Right. So Hans really drove that whole quality along with Lebo. I mean, Lebo came in that day and just improvised that famous, I mean, he just kind of did it. And we all went, yeah, that's nice. Let's, we'll put that in as a placeholder. And then it never left. (laughs) Wow. And all around the world, all around the world, every night, to this day, somebody is singing that thing that Lebo did on his own. We'll be back next week for part two of our interview with Chris Monten, where he'll discuss working with different composers like Hans Zimmer and Thomas Newman, his work with Pixar, Randy Newman, and artists like Sarah McLachlan, and so much more. Thank you.